For Pacifica Radio, August the 21st, 2022, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director of Antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can sign up for the podcast feed on all the different podcatchers there. And introducing today's guest, it's Shireen Al-Adimi, and uh, here she is writing at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And um, it's this great piece, How Long Will the Fragile Truce in Yemen Last? Which is the most pertinent of questions for us. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Shireen? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Uh, really appreciate you joining us here today. So that is the big question. Uh, well, you're presuming everyone knows in the title here uh, mm-hmm. in the piece. We have a truce in Yemen for months now. It was only a two-month truce, and now we're in month four of it. So that's pretty good. But just how shaky is this thing? Well, um, as with all things Yemen, things are very complicated, and it's not as straightforward. And I think part of that complexity is because there's just so much international backing of various factions within the ground, on the ground. And so if this were a civil war with two or three groups, things would be much easier. But I guess the big question is how long are are foreign backers going to continue backing their different forces in Yemen? And that's what we're seeing now as a transition from just outward bombing of Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen to more, um, you know, funding of uh, different factions who are allegiant to them. And, you know, this kind of was legitimized through this presidential council that they put together after they pushed Hadi aside, who was the president they supposedly wanted to uh, reinstate back into Yemen. Mm. So, in other words, well, is it right that the council, that that was really the kind of the purpose of the council was to legitimize sort of a change in strategy and fighting and just backing new and different militias kind of a thing? Or was it ever really the point of throwing Hadi under the bus that this new group, whoever they are, they at least will have the object of negotiating a peace with the Houthis here, right? Wasn't that the point of that? Yeah, but think about who's doing the appointing even. So the council is not a result of negotiations that are in, and dialogues that have been happening in Oman with the Houthis and the Saudis. Right. So while those dialogues were happening, Saudi Arabia, who again is the aggressor here, right, is this foreign occupier, they get to decide, hey, President Hadi, who's been sitting in there in, in Riyadh this whole entire time, um, they're like, you're going to step aside and we're going to put these, this group of people instead of you. And now they're going to be in charge of Yemen, essentially. So they just get to decide what's happening in Yemen. And that doesn't bode well for the sovereignty that Yemeni people have been fighting for over the last seven years or so. Yeah. Um, and members of those of this council were hand-selected for their connections with um, either Saudi Arabia, four of them allegiant to Saudi Arabia, four, four of them with backing and funding for years now from the UAE. And so, um, and there's infighting between them as we speak. I didn't include this part in my piece, but 
members of the council, like people they re- that they represent, are are fighting and the f- battles are ferocious in the southern province of Shabwa, which is oil and grass rich. So it doesn't bode well for the future of Yemen. It's, it's just that things are going to look a little bit differently from now on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I totally think that's right. That, um, And that was sort of the premise of my question was that this new council are basically the sock puppets of the Saudis and or the UAE. I, I don't know who's really dominant. I guess the Saudis uh, rule mostly, but that the purpose of that was so that this new group, as opposed to the old hottie pretended yep. government sitting in a hotel in Riyadh somewhere, yeah. that these guys, that their purpose would be to negotiate a peace. But I guess yep. you're saying that, or I don't, I guess I don't really understand because the, the Saudis, um, I mean, not only did they do that, but they actually, uh, not only did they appoint this council, but they also were negotiating through the UN with the Houthis to negotiate yep. this ceasefire, right? But then I guess you're saying they're not using this new presidential council to legitimize negotiations, but instead to legitimize more violence. Right. And so you have members of this council. Um, so the UAE has poured a lot of finances and um, effort into propping up the separatist government in the South. So the entire time they were saying that they wanted, they were trying to support Hadi back into power, they were actually supporting his enemies, right, in the South. Um, And the leader of that Southern Transitional Group is one of the members of the council. And his group right now, which is UAE funded and backed, has been clashing with members of the um, Islamist party that are um, funded and and backed by the UAE. Again, there are other Uh members of the council who are part of representing that group. And they've been, you know, fighting for for this province, Shabwa, because the UAE realizes that, well, what were they in this war for? You know, what was all of this financial investment, so to speak, in Yemen for, if not to seize, um, you know, Yemen's resources, whether it's the ports in the south or, you know, oil and gas in the south. Uh, Meanwhile, the Saudis just were kind of done with this and wanted to end this war while saving face because they never really had a strategy in Yemen. It was just violence for the sake of it and for the sake of trying to control Yemen back into a puppet government. Um, And so the Saudis and the UAE have always had conflicting goals. And now we're seeing the different factions that they've backed continue to fight in this very violent way. Um, Meanwhile, the Houthis are trying to negotiate with (laughs) with the Saudis and with this council, supposedly, and they haven't really received many concessions. So they, as part of the truce, um, they allowed two commercial flights a week into Sana'a Airport from, you know, Amman and Jordan, uh, Amman and Jordan and Cairo and Egypt. Um, they've allowed more fuel ships into the country in the last four months than they have throughout the entirety of 2021. Um, but you know, millions of people who are salary who were supposed to receive their salaries from the central bank, civil civil servants, have not gotten paid yet. Um, the blockade has not been fully lifted. The Government in Sana'a cannot go back to commercial trade like they used to. You know, that's the lifeline of Yemen. Um, and so there are a lot of things that are just on hold. And uh, meanwhile, there are all these clashes in the South. So it's just looking more chaotic than ever before. Oh, man, what a mess. And I, why is it exactly? Is it just because they share the southern coast is why the UAE has backed the Southern Transitional Council, who are essentially you know, a socialist kind of remnant of Soviet days. And then to yeah. their east, these Islamist, like Bin Ladenite suicide bomber types. 
I mean, unfortunately, the um, the socialist kind of movement is is long dead in South Yemen, and what we see now with the Southern Transitional Council, Council, there's not really that socialist ideology that's driving it. Oh, I guess um, I was conflating those two things. That one became yeah. the other. Is that right? Kind of, I guess. They're just so the throughout the '90s. This is maybe a little more history than your audience wants, but throughout the '90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and after South Yemen went back into the fold of unity with the North, um, there was a lot of uh, Wahhabi influence. So Wahhabi is the extreme ideology that Saudi Arabia invented basically, and they call Islam. Um, And there was a lot of that infiltration of that ideology into Yemen, and it really took hold in South Yemen. And so, you know, there, because, you know, people were vulnerable to to something like this, infiltrating them without like, you know, having gone through a history of colonialism and whatnot that eroded a lot of their own history. Um, and so what we see today is not really any kind of socialist government, but yeah, they do share a coast and the UAE, UAE does understand the importance of the port of Aden uh, for trade. And they're probably thinking of reviving it. They understand the value of province of Shabwa for, for its oil and it's, and they've been exploiting it for the last several years. Uh, and they also understand the importance of the island of Sokatra in South Yemen, which is just the most one of the most amazing places you'll see. Um, and the UAE is, has all but all but annexed and occupied it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so for tourism purposes, I mean, they're even operating tourism, you know, tourist flights uh, from Abu Dhabi to Sokatra. There was a report that the U.S. Marines opened up a base there, too. Do you know if that's still there? I'm not I'm not actually quite sure, but I wouldn't be surprised because there's just I mean, you have these countries like the UAE and the US thinking to themselves, like, why were we involved? Why did we spend so much money and time in Yemen if we weren't going to get something out of it? And they see this Southern Transitional Council as being uh, open enough as a puppet government for them Mm -hmm. to be able to control and direct as they see Mm -hmm. wish, because, I mean, they are getting funded uh, by the UAE. The Southern Transitional Council would not exist without the UAE's funding. Okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure, you know, how dependent they were. I know that they've been backed by them, certainly the whole war long, uh, just as the suicide bomber types have. Now, do I have this story right? Yeah, I know I do. But isn't it mm-hmm. right that, uh, correct me, uh, help me remember which year it was that the Al-Qaeda guys became such an embarrassment that America demanded that the UAE integrate them into their militia force and give them a new name? <laughs> Was that 2018, something like that, three years into the war, something like that, after Al-Qaeda had been kind of running wild in Makala and other towns there? Yeah, yeah, and so you have these, This are you talking about the Giants Brigade? Right, yeah, exactly. And they even yeah. had like an American former military officers and mercenaries from all over the world, all embedded with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Exactly, and one of the and the leader of the of the brigade, the Giants Brigade, is uh, one of the members of the council. And so you can see why this... Yeah. does not bode very well for Yemenis because you have a mercenary, essentially, a Qaeda mercenary on, on that council. Yeah. Look, people, uh, first of all, we're talking with uh, Shireen Aladimi, writing for Responsible Statecraft here. And I admit probably like if people are tuning in on Sunday morning here on KPFK, they might be wondering, come on, how could America and our allies be on the side of the guys that knocked down the towers? But the answer is that the guys that took over the capital city are Shiites and friends with Iran. And it's about as simple as that, isn't it? I would say it's more complicated than that, because um, going back into Yemeni history, about 100 years ago, actually, 
Um, the same, you know, not the same, not the Houthis, but also a Shia Zaydi government, uh, a monarchy, um, began to rule Yemen after the Ottomans left. So this is 1918. Um, and they ruled from about 1918 till the 60s. And then in the 60s, revolutionary, military revolutionaries kept, kept on trying to, you know, uh, depose them from power. And who were they supported by? Who was this monarchy supported by? The Saudis and the British, right? And even Israel, because they had a an investment in having a monarchy at their southern border. So Saudi Arabia is going to do what Saudi Arabia, what is best for Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, in the 1960s, it was best for Saudi Arabia to have another monarchy at its border because Yemen till this day remains the only republic in that region, in the entire Arabian Gulf region. They're all monarchies and we're the only republic. And so that was not going to be good news for Saudi Arabia. And so they did everything they can for eight years, backed the monarchists who happened to also be Shia Zaidi, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think for them, it's more an issue of power and who gets to control Bab al-Mandab Strait. Yeah. Would the Houthis, well, that was my, my the yeah. emphasis really there should have been and friends with Iran. <laughs> yeah, right? friends with Iran, but not even to that extent. I mean, the Houthis are very independent. Um, they, they don't have that many ideological dif- uh, similarities with, with Iran, uh, but they do control Bab al-Mandab, they would control Bab al-Mandab Strait, which is the strait through which um, international shipping goes through, essentially. Anything that goes through Suez Canal has gone through Yemen first. Anything coming back from Suez Canal ha- needs to go through Yemen to right. exit, right? And yeah, so, this is the southern gate of the Red Sea. Southern gate of the Red Sea is extremely important. And even though the Houthis didn't really threaten um, stopping any shipping or anything like that, they just understood the Saudis and the U.S. have always understood that that's an important point. And so we need to have a government in Yemen that is favorable to the U.S., is favorable to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I can't Um, remember who it was that years ago said, look, the Saudis always just paid the Houthis to behave, whether they're backing them, trying to take over the whole country or not. But either way, they just always gave them money, which the Saudis have unlimited amounts of. So why can't we just go back to that, <laughs> figure out a way to get along here, you know? Yeah, I mean, you have a crown prince who is in over his head, didn't really understand the politics, uh, thought he could just enter a country like Yemen with a long history of resistance to occupation and just win it in two weeks, you know, called it Operation Decisive Storm. And so you have hubris and uh, power and money that ended up directing this and causing the world's worst humanitarian crisis. At the end of the day, the Saudis have lost money. Uh, the U.S. gained a lot of that money because the Saudis were purchasing all of these equipment and weapons and training and services and logistics and all of that. All of that was for, you know, they were purchasing it from the United States. Um, but, you know, the Saudis didn't really lose any civilians here. Yemen, the, you know, Riyadh is standing. Nothing's been destroyed in Saudi Arabia. Um, and Yemen was completely destroyed and abandoned by the international community who re- literally like ganged up to support the Saudi monarchy uh, because it was just a great business deal for, for everybody who the Saudis and the Emiratis were purchasing weapons from. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com.
You guys check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Well, uh, it's been seven years of this and seven and a half almost now, I guess. Um, can you tell us, you know, describe for the people, help them to imagine in their mind's eye a real picture of what is the humanitarian situation in Yemen for the people of the north, the middle, and the south, and the east, and the west, and whoever. And even now, I know, you, uh, as you said, I think the ports have been more open than before, but they're, not still, they're still not completely open. But, um, you know, people here, it's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. It's far away, and TV doesn't show it. So what does that really mean? I mean, you know, a child is still dying every 75 seconds because um, they get sick and they don't have clean drink, drinking water and they don't have medicine, they don't have access to hospitals. So even a small, you know, fever could kill a child whose parents can't get a hold of some Tylenol. Um, the hunger is still an issue. The UN is not able to fulfill much of its um, needs to operate in Yemen. Um, so I read something like, you know, only 23% or so of its need needs in Yemen to operate have been, um, you know, established. And so they're operating at a shortage and they're having to decide which families go hungry and which families at least have a meal coming up. Um, and people are just, you know, like these are ordinary people like you and me living their lives. And all of a sudden Saudi Arabia decides to, you know, they, I mean, Arab Spring and all of that, of course, in years of tumult. But the war really didn't begin until the bombing began, this international coalition began. And so um, people's lives have been torn apart. Um, their families have been torn apart. People have displaced internally because even when, you know, like you see with the Ukraine crisis, uh, immediately the borders were open and all of these countries welcomed Ukrainians all around the world. And in the case of Yemenis, all they saw were just, you know, shut doors and um, they couldn't even get out of their own country, let alone seek asylum in other places. Um, so it's really dire. I think it's just a probably the worst. I mean, it is the worst humanitarian crisis. It's just, you know, in this 21st century, the worst we've seen humans do to one another um, at this scale to have over 80 percent of this population of 30 million people dependent on aid and then not receiving that aid because the very same people pledging to give aid are the ones who have bombed them and caused them to even need this aid. Right. And then they don't fulfill these pledges. And I'm talking about rich countries like the U.S. and the U.A.E. and Saudi Arabia. Um, so it's um, it's 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 really sad. It's heartbreaking. You know, kids out of school, people's um, entire futures have just been destroyed um, for something they just didn't do for for no reason at all. Like no civilian should ever be punished for for any of this. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, international community just looked at Saudi Arabia and said, how can we support you instead of, you know, sanctioning them instead of doing whatever they could to protect civilians in Yemen, which is why the whole narrative around Ukraine is really hypocritical, because we know that 
that's not what they did when it came to Yemen. They just ganged up alongside the Saudis. Yeah. All right. It's Shireen Aladimi. She's writing at Responsible Statecraft. And I beg your pardon for just a minute here. I got to try to raise some money for KPFK. It's the most powerful FM transmitter west of the Mississippi River, Los Angeles, and the rest of Southern California, which it's repeated in San Diego and Ridgecrest, China Lake, and up in Santa Barbara and everywhere. All Southern California is an essential part of the community. And uh, what in the world would you guys do without it? So KPFK, it's uh, kpfk.org to pledge or call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735 to keep anti-war radio on the air and to keep KPFK Pacifica in Los Angeles and in the rest of Southern California on the air so that we can preach peace. And in fact, we're going to be talking about this more next week and after that too. But right after Labor Day, we're going to start another brand new push once Congress is back to support this War Powers resolution. We're going to use the power of this FM transmitter to help to really get it done if we can. And in fact, now that I'm rambling about that, I think I need to talk with some of the other people at KPFK about a coordinated effort there. But anyway... Just think about the power of this transmitter blasting from the top of Mount Wilson and what we can do with it if we use it right. But we don't have corporate sponsors at all. We're supported by you, the listener. So that's it. It's kpfk.org to pledge. You know that you got to do your part. kpfk.org, 818-985-5735. And thank you very much for that. And now, when we're talking about the humanitarian situation in Yemen here, I have to bring this up every time. I forget if I've ever uh, editorialized about this in one of your interviews before, Shireen. I think I need to bring it up every time. And that is the story. It's written by Morgan Hunter at antiwar.com. As far as I know, it's the only real piece about this, but I need to dig further into it. But anyway, it's this incredible piece about how America and Saudi and UAE and Al-Qaeda's war in Yemen caused the locust plague that inundated not just Yemen, but then crossed the Red Sea and, and inundated Eastern Africa in the last few years. That was all caused because there actually was a grasshopper eradication program at the University of Sana'a, or in Sana'a, I'm not sure exactly what the title, but they had the graduate students had this huge program where they would go out and eradicate the grasshoppers. Well, the war, our war, destroyed the university and the program and the grasshoppers went wild and turned into locusts and then decimated crops and starved. I don't know how many people. The excess death rate in East Africa is in the hundreds of thousands or God, I hope it ain't millions over the last few years because of that locust plague. Decimating crops in Eritrea and Kenya and Ethiopia and Somalia and, uh, and just causing an absolute catastrophe for those people of biblical proportions because of our war. And, you know, it's things like that, deliberately blockading and starving people and killing civilians. These are the reasons that Osama bin Laden was able to recruit suicide hijackers to attack this country. That's what they were willing to do that over was things like this. And we just keep doing it. Hundreds of thousands of civilians? How many hundreds of thousands of civilians? Well, let's see. It's somewhere between... 300,000 and eight or nine or 10,000, we hope it's not. What? What are we doing? 
but this is what we're doing. So uh, locust plagues and all. That's American foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, and now I want to get back to your point about Iran, which is so important. As I mentioned, yeah, friendship there. I didn't really call it an alliance because I yeah. agree with you totally that that was all overblown. Like this is just an excuse for war anyway. There was this great expert on the Houthis um, named Joost Hilterman from the Netherlands who wrote a piece called The Houthis Are Not Hezbollah for Foreign Policy way back years ago. We said, yeah, Nasrallah and, and Hezbollah, they're kind of Iran's 51st state down there in Lebanon. I'm paraphrasing, something like that. But the Houthis just are not. They're friends. They're not really allies. They're not dependent. And as you said, they've been under blockade this whole time. So whatever material support Iran has ever been able to provide to the Houthis during this to help bleed their enemies, the Saudis, dry, uh, by the way, you know, that only really helps them, has been limited by necessity anyway, even if they wanted to give them everything they had. Exactly. The country is under land, air, and sea blockade. Every ship that enters the port of Hodeidah, which is controlled by the Houthis, it gets you know inspected by the Saudis and certified by the UN verification system, UNVIM. And after it's received its, its uh, certification, then the Saudis decide whether to clear it or not. You know, even that's how they impose their blockade, essentially. And they, the whole system is in place so that they would prevent Iranian weapons from entering the ports. So clearly they're not able to enter the port, even if they tried. Um, they can't enter through land because you've got, you know, borders are basically with Saudi Arabia. Like, how are they supposed to enter through Saudi Arabia? And Oman's border is highly secure. And... Even if they enter through Oman's border, somehow they'd have to go through ISIS and Al-Qaeda territory, which is, there's no way it's going to survive, right? And all the airports are shut down. Airspace is controlled. Houthis can't even fly, you know, a drone inside of Yemen. And so, um, but we're supposed to imagine that this is an equivalent war, that whatever support that the Iranians are providing is equivalent to Saudi and therefore justifiable for Saudi Arabia. I mean, none of the, like, logically doesn't make sense if you follow that idea throughout um, but there hasn't been much material support, if any. And even if there was, it doesn't rise to the level, of course, of all of the support that the so-called Hadi government as a puppet essentially has been receiving from the international community. Yeah, no question about that. And, and then in the fact, some hawk might be listening and say, no, remember Nikki Haley and the giant missile? Oh, yeah. But that was debunked by Jane's Defense Weekly, the premier industry trade magazine, said no. Iran and the previous Yemeni government both bought those missiles from North Korea. And yep. all the modifications here are Yemeni modifications, not Iranian ones. Debunked. I mean, President Saleh was a major ally of the U.S., had allowed them to enter Yemen and do as they please with Yemen in the name of fighting terror, right? Um, same with the Bush administration, Um while, you know, during during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration. And so for decades and decades, this man had been stockpiling all of these weapons, which he left for the Houthis. The first two and a half years, he was cooperating with the Houthis, gave them access to everything that he had. He remained in control of the Yemeni military, much of the Yemeni military. And so all of these missiles are ones that were already in the country, either purchased from the U.S. or purchased from elsewhere. But it had been part of his stockpile. And so there's no evidence of Iranian weapons other than Nikki Haley pointing at some, you know, missile and saying that's Iranian and we have to take her word for it. Yeah, seriously. Um, all right. Now, 
let's talk about this activism. Obviously, it's summer break for these congressional people, but it's so important. I mean, this never happened in my lifetime until the Yemen war that Congress would have dared to pass a war powers resolution to try to force an end of the war. Now, of course, they could just defund all participation in the war, which is really Congress's role. But anyway, at least they're doing this. And we can do a huge push by being as loud as we possibly can and organizing a really big push all at once to get this War Powers Resolution through. And it's H.J. Res 87 in the House and it's S.J. Res 56 in the Senate. We're going to do the biggest push that we can to try to get this thing through Congress. And they got, you know, more than 100 co-sponsors already. So, you know, um, I know that you'll be doing your best to uh, yeah. promote that as well. And we'll be doing everything we can here on Anti-War Radio to help to push that through. Something's got to be done, and this is it. So uh, thank you again so much for your time on the show, Shireen. I hope everyone will read your great article. It's How Long Will the Fragile Truce in Yemen Last? And it's at ResponsibleStateCraft.org. Help make this one viral, folks. And thank you again, Shireen. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. All right, y'all, and that is Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm Scott Horton. Our website is scotthorton.org, and I'm here every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Phone number is 818-985-5735 to support kpfk.org. See you next week.